Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come before you again on another Sunday morning to hear a word from you. We pray that you would open up our, our ears and our hearts to hear from your word. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all again. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I want to catch you up. We're in a new series called Explore God. And we're, what's happening is we are partnering with, I think it's about over 800 churches in the Chicagoland area. And we're inviting our communities, our neighborhoods, our friends, our family to come explore God with us. And we're going to be asking some of the most difficult questions that people ask about God and Christianity. And I want to remind you that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, that you are welcome at Faith Covenant Church. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have some hang-ups about God. You have some questions. You have some doubts. I want you to know that this is a safe place for you, that you are welcome here, that you are welcome to ask any question that you have as we explore God together. Uh, many of you, you've been a Christian for a long time, but maybe there have been some questions or doubts that you haven't felt permission to ask, you haven't felt permission to say. Well, we want to let you know that you have permission to ask those questions anytime, but especially during this series. Uh, maybe some of you, you're fine, you don't really have many questions, you're very strong in your faith, but I bet you have some friends and family members who do. And I want you to know, I believe that this series is going to be helpful to you um, in your journey of faith. Um, and, and today, uh, you know, we want to talk about, uh, again, this question of, is there a God? Uh, because sometimes there's, there's doubts that we have, there's questions we have. And I want to make, uh, make it clear that it's okay to question sometimes. It's okay to go through these periods of doubt. I think we all have them, and it's, just, it's important that we just want to uh, tell you that it's normal. Every Christian, I think, experiences periods of questioning and doubt. And I, I can point to many different times in my life where I've had questions and doubt. And one stands out in particular. Uh, I had just become a youth pastor at age 21, right out of, right out of college, at, at a church in Goshen, Indiana. And I went from immediately like just studying and, and being a college kid and reading, and reading books and stuff to now I was teaching and leading students three times a week. You know, I was, I was teaching on Wednesdays, I was teaching Sunday school, I was leading small groups. And it's, maybe you guys can't, maybe you can understand this, maybe you can relate to this or not, I don't know. Maybe it's a pastor thing. Uh, but when you're, when you're standing in front of people, like I am now, and proclaiming to them, you know, what we believe in the truth, it's, it's kind of a daunting experience. Uh, because, you know, you're, you're proclaiming something, you're saying, this is true and I'm asking you to believe this and act on this. And when I was doing that three times a week as a, as a 21-year-old, uh, you know, the thought entered my mind, what if I'm wrong? What if, I, what if I got this whole thing wrong? What if I'm, what if I'm saying something that's, that's not true? Or what if, I, you know, what if I'm mistaken? And, and it, it wasn't enough to shake my faith. I'd been walking with Jesus for years. And I, obviously, I went, I went into ministry. I was strong. But the question still came. And no matter how strong you are in your faith, questions and doubts still come. And the question is, what do you do? And so what I did is I, I tried to get as many answers as I could find. I studied. I read books. I picked up The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Highly commend that book to you. And I tried to, you know, get as many answers to my questions as I could. And now, we can't answer all of our questions this side of heaven. I think that's impossible. But I'll tell you what. I found some compelling answers to a lot of the questions that I did have. And I want to let you know that we should, when you have questions about God, we should always address them, not stuff them. When you have questions about God, you should always address them and not stuff them. Because God is big enough to handle all your questions. Amen? Amen? He is big enough to handle them all. And that's what we're doing this series. And when you begin to ask 
questions about God, you kind of have to start at the beginning, the ground level. Is there even a God? Does God exist? Or do we just make him up? Where do we get this idea of God from? And when you begin to ask this question, you realize quickly that we are not in the arena of, of prove or disprove. You know, it's not like I, I can, you know, pull back the curtain and say, well, there's God. I have the 100% proof for you. We can't do that. And neither can anyone disprove totally the existence of God. We're not in the arena of prove or disprove. Uh, and, um, but I believe, even though we cannot prove, I believe there, there are compelling clues about God's existence that help us. We're in the arena of faith, but it helps us to have, have clues for the existence of God. And so today we're going to be considering some clues for God's existence that I believe will help you if you're questioning and exploring, or if you're, if you're a believer, this will strengthen your faith that you already have. So let's dive right in. Seven clues for the existence of God. The first is this. God makes sense of the origin of the universe. God makes sense of the origin of the universe. Every person has to answer. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why are we here? Why is there an existence rather than non-existence? And when you begin to look at our world, you realize that everything has a cause. Everything has a cause that has caused it to be. And, or some people use the word contingent. It's dependent upon something else. The lights are on this morning because someone flipped the switch. And someone before that put it, the switch there. And someone invented light and so on and so on. There's a cause for everything and why it's there. And because of that reality... It makes sense to think, well, there is a universe. There must be something that caused this universe to be. And scientists have looked into this. They've looked in, well, how did the universe come about? Why is it here? And it's now basically universally agreed by the scientific community that, yes, the universe has had a cause. And they call it the Big Bang. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. And basically the, the idea is that however long ago there was a big explosion of light and heat and ex now it's been expanding our universe from that time. Um, and the idea of the universe expanding is really important. I found uh, Stephen Haw Hawking said this. Uh, he said, almost everyone now believes that the universe in time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So there's agreement about that. But then there's, here's another anecdote from William Lane Craig. He says this. In 2003, a mathematician, I don't know how to say that name, <laughs> and physicists don't know how to say their name, but they were able to prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history, cannot be infinite in the past, but must have had a space-time boundary, i.e. a beginning. So basically what's happening here is scientists, they have observed that the universe is expanding, and they have come to the conclusion that if a universe is expanding, then it must have had scientifically a beginning point. In other words, the universe cannot be eternal. It cannot always have been. It cannot just exist into affinity in the past. There was a beginning point to our existence in the universe. Um, and so it seems logical to conclude that if the universe had a beginning point, then something must have caused the beginning point, right? Uh, and whatever would cause the universe would have to be something that is uncaused. Otherwise, you would get an infinite amount of, of things causing things on and on and on into the past. But no, there must be something that exists that is uncaused, that exists eternally. And Christians believe that that is exactly how the Bible describes God. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible, opens up this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's the beginning point, the uncaused causer. Now, some people might object here and say, you know what, 
Nate, hasn't, hasn't science totally disproven the Bible? Hasn't, isn't there such a, con, a, a contradiction between science and the Bible? And I want to submit to you this morning, I think that is a misunderstanding of what the scriptures are doing, especially in Genesis. Uh, you know, I think, I think saying, this, is, this isn't a totally applicable analogy, but, but hang with me. Uh, you know, to say science disproves the Bible is like saying science disproves Grey's Anatomy. Because, you know, I, I, my wife, she watched medical, sh- medical shows, which, which I don't get. She's a nurse and she, wa- she loves medical shows. That'd be like me going home and watching a pastor show. I mean, I love being a pastor, but I, li- I, like, I like a little more clean separation between my work and my rest. Uh, but she loves medical shows and sometimes she'll say in there, well, that's, that's not how it really goes. That's not really how they operate. And Cassie, I'm sure you can relate to this. That's not how they really do that in, in, the, in the emergency room or in the hospital. And so it must, it must be totally false. You know, but Grey's Anatomy, it's telling a story. The point isn't to be totally 100% scientific. It's to tell the story. In the same way, the Bible, it's not a false story. It's a true story. But the point is also to tell a story. The point is not to hand you a book of scientific knowledge. It's not a science test book that explains how everything came to be. It's telling you a story of who God is, who we are, and why we are here. That's the point. So we can't expect it to do what it's not meant to do. And so I believe Christians can learn from anything that is truth. All truth is God's truth. So Christians can learn from science, and we can learn from the scriptures. Obviously, scriptures are primary, but we can learn from both. And so Genesis tells us that God made the universe, that we are his creation, and that he is above all. And he is the eternal cause that made the universe and gave it its start. He makes sense of the origin of the universe. That's clue number one. Let's go to clue number two. God makes sense of the fine-tuning of the universe. Um, Now, I'm going to give this disclaimer, and it applies for everything I'm saying. I'm no scientist. I'm a pastor. So feel free to do your own study on this, okay? Uh, But when you begin to look at some of the evidence, you realize that our universe and our world is set up precisely for us to be here, to exist. And scientists call this the fine-tuning, that it's finely tuned uh, the universe is finely tuned so that we can exist, that everything is as it should be for life to happen. You know, if we were just a fraction closer to the sun, we would be, it would be so hot here it could not support life, everything would burn up. If we were just a fraction further away from the sun, everything would get so cold that life could not be supported here. It turns out that planet Earth is precisely where it needs to be in our solar system for life to exist. Isn't that amazing? Now, uh, I really, like I said, I'm not a scientist, so I want to pull up a video because I want to let some scientists help explain here what's going on. So if we can pull that video up about the fine-tuning. Here we go. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity 
is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and light couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. So hopefully that was helpful to you. <laughs> And you can get your mind around that. It's a little mind-boggling, some of those numbers. I've, I have no idea what some of those mean. But it's amazing that every part is so finely tuned for us to be here. And it didn't have to be this way. And there's basically kind of one standard objection to this. Is, is some people say, well, there could just be you know, a, ton, a million kinds of universes and we just happen to be in the one that permits life. But the reality is there is no proof for other universes. We only have evidence for this universe and so to believe that there are multiple millions of other universes is also a belief in and of itself. And so the, the chance of this all falling in line at the same time and all of these numbers working together, we believe is a clue for the existence of God. Clue number three, God makes sense of the laws of nature. You know, besides our universe being finely tuned for our existence, there are also certain laws of nature uh, that are, that. Ha, are, they just are, they always have been, and they seemingly always will be. Water freezes at 32 Fahrenheit, and it boils at 212. It's always been that way. Uh, an object in motion stays in motion, unless acted upon by an outside force. Some of you, some of you, I saw, I saw that. Uh, the water cycle just continues to work. Uh, things just, the, our, our world works, it has laws that make everything run. And most people just take this for granted. They say, well, that's just how it is. Uh, but when, you, when scientists look into, us, look into this, there's, there's no reason why these laws are the way they are. And there's no scientific reason that they will continue to be the way they are. Scientists have to take it by faith that these laws will always continue to be. 
But Christians point to, actually, we believe that there is a creator, a lawmaker, who has set up these laws, who has set up this universe to work under very predictable, very logical, very reasonable laws that you can trust in. And so uh, we believe that that is a clue to the existence of God. Again, it doesn't prove the case, but it is a clue that helps us. Clue number four. God makes sense of beauty and love. God makes sense of beauty and love. If you know me, you know my wife Laura, you know we love national parks. We love to go hiking. We, well, and, and many of us, we find that nature, that time, so stunning, so beautiful, so thrilling. That's why we love it. We love to see all the beautiful uh, parts of nature that our country has preserved. And when you see those, those mountain peaks, those ocean vistas, those places that look like paradise, uh, the ocean, the rivers, the streams, the forests, wild animals, there's just something inside, inside of us that finds it so thrilling, so compelling. Many of us are also, you're, we're deeply moved by, by works of art, uh, works of composition, music. There's something inside of us when you hear that, that perfect note or when, when something is just so beautiful that, you, that you're seeing and visualizing. Something inside of us is deeply moved. Yet if there is no God, then basically what we, we only find nature beautiful, you know, people, secular people will say is, well, sometime in our distant past, our ancestors found nature beautiful. And, they, and those people found, they were able to find food in those places, so therefore that genetic trait survived and was passed on. And the only reason we find certain things beautiful is because it helped us evolve, it helped us survive. And so there's no really intrinsic beauty or value uh, in these things. It's just something that helped the species survive. And if that is true, I believe uh, love would function in the same way. It's simply a biological chemical reaction in the brain designed to propagate the species. It's, it's something that is biological that has helped us survive. And so the significance of natural beauty, of art, of music, and love, these would only be an illusion to us because they have simply been tools that have helped the species survive. But I believe there is another way to look at it. There is something about these experiences that, that make us, that we, we appreciate it, but at the same time they make us long. They make us long for more. When we see beauty, we long for more beauty, for more love, for more transcendence and joy. And there seems to be nothing on earth that can fully satisfy our longings. And it seems that the world has created that if there is a desire that exists within us, then there exists something true to, to fulfill that desire. Uh, C.S. Lewis made this argument many years ago, and he, and he says it this way. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Baby feels hunger? Well, there is such a thing as food. It exists. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find my, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Beauty, love, joy, transcendence. These are things that move us deeply and we long for more of them. I mean, could you imagine a world where there is endless joy, where there is perfect peace, where there is perfect love, and where you experience these things on an unending basis? Doesn't your heart just soar? Don't you long for a world of perfected beauty and joy and love? My friends, we were made for another world. We were made for another world where these desires will one day be fulfilled. And Christians believe that God is going to bring us to this world and renew all things. So God makes sense of beauty and love, that they're more than just 
things that have helped us survive, but they have meaning in life. Fifth clue is God makes sense of logic. God makes sense of logic. Logic. Uh, it could be argued that even your ability to pay attention to me right now uh, and follow what I'm saying is dependent and possible only because of God. You know, many uh, secular atheists uh, will make the argument that the reason so many people in our world have believed in God is because it helped, again, it helped our ancestors to survive. A belief in God made people more kind, made people more loving, or maybe that they worried about the judgment of God so they didn't kill off people or something. But the, so people who believed in God were more likely to survive, so they passed on those traits, and that's why people believe in God today. That is one of the arguments that you find out there. But what they don't say is that even a belief in atheism, revolution, wouldn't that also be something that is impacted by the evolutionary process and be something that also could have evolved from a set of people uh, that helped them to survive? And so when you get to that point, you realize, can we trust our logic at all if it was something that only helped the species survive? Uh, and to kind of help you put your mind around this, listen to what Charles Darwin the writer of The Origin of Species, look what he says. He says, The horrid doubt arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animal, animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. What he's saying there, if you have the mind of an ape, how can you trust what you think? If you have the mind of a goldfish, and it's been developed over the years, how can you know that your reasoning and your logic is true? And so it puts doubt into what we experience. Can we even trust our own logic? And if there is no God, if there is no objective truth in the world, then we are hard-pressed to be able to trust our own reasoning at all. But on the other hand, Christians believe that God has made us logical beings, that he has made us in his image, that he has given us the ability to think, the ability to reason, and that we, we have this so that we can relate to God's truth in the world. Again, it's another clue to how we make sense of God. The sixth clue. God makes sense of morality. God makes sense of morality. Tim Keller says all human beings have moral feelings. All human beings. Every culture in every society over the, over the existence of time has had moral codes. And there's actually a surprising lot of overlap between these codes. Uh, and, but what's funny is people today, on the surface, they, they, say so, they, they don't like to hold on to that certain things are right or certain things are wrong. They'll say things like, well, well, no one should force their moral views on another person. They should be able to determine what is right or wrong for themselves. What is true for them is true for them, and what's true for me is true for me. But then you might ask them the question, well, aren't there things in our world that you believe are morally wrong, regardless of what the person doing it thinks of it? I mean, don't you believe that murdering is wrong, regardless of what the murderer thought about it. It doesn't matter what they thought about it, it was wrong. Uh, or would you say the same thing about discrimination or racism? It doesn't matter what that person thinks about it, it's wrong, period. To use an extreme example, the Nazis. None of them thought it was wrong, what they were doing, but we say emphatically, no, it was evil, it was wrong, period. It doesn't matter what they thought about it. It's not based upon their own view of whether it was right or wrong. But if there is... If there is no God, who gets to say? Who gets to say what is right or what is wrong? If there's no objective standard, isn't it just culturally conditioned? Uh, you know, you think stealing and killing is wrong. Well, perhaps those are simply traits that developed over time that actually helps certain people survive. 
If there's no objective basis, then how can we determine? And who should say? Who should get to determine what's right or wrong and how to make laws about this? Well, some people say it's the majority. The majority of people, our country, you should be able to vote. The majority of people think this is wrong and we should make a law about this and that, that becomes the law. But what if the majority believes that certain races are inferior? What if the majority chooses not to treat women the same as men? Wouldn't you say that the majority is actually wrong in those cases? You see, if there's no objective standard, then we are at a loss for how to determine right or wrong. The majority can't determine it. Uh, our cultures can't determine it. Evolution can't determine it. Yet, somehow, we still believe certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Why is that? In the secular view, there's not, there doesn't seem to be a good reason. But Christians believe there, there's a right and wrong because there is a God who is the objective standard, the determiner of, of right and wrong. That's another clue. The final clue this morning is God makes sense of religious experience. God makes sense of religious experience. Church father, St. Augustine, he says, Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. In other words, there is something in the human heart that is restless, that is anxious, until we rest in our creator, in God. In all throughout world history, Nearly all human beings and culture have believed in at least some type of higher power and being. And even now, the vast majority of people on our planet have some type of belief in a higher power of some sort. Even in communist countries like China that have deliberately tried to suppress the religion of their people, Christianity is exploding like never before. Even if governments try to shut religion down, there seems to be something in the human heart that, that resists. No, there is something else out there. The Bible says it this way. We read this last week in Acts 17. The Bible says this. From one man, he made, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from anyone, any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. One pastor I came across, he called... He called this, this idea that, that each person has, has a homing device for God. It's almost as there, there, is a, there is something inside of us that is pointing us, that is calling us to reach out for God and find him, to explore him. And I believe this is a clue that nearly for all world history, human beings have been religious. They have had a search for God that, we might go, that, that, we, that they might find him. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, if you believe in God, I would would invite you to consider that these are things that you would expect. If you believe in God, that you would expect all of these things to be true. That, that the universe, yes, would have a beginning, that it would be finely tuned for our existence because God made it that way, that nature has certain laws that it operates, that beauty and love are real and true, that we are logical creatures and we can use our reasoning, that there, yes, there is a right and a, and a wrong and there is justice, and that human beings would be religious because you would expect it because God put it in their heart. But, on the contrary... If your worldview is based on no God or simply on the evolutionary process, then you should, I believe, not expect the universe to maybe have a defined origin with God, to be finely tuned for our existence, to operate on consistent laws, for beauty and love to have meaning, for us to be endowed with logical reasoning that we can trust, to have their objective right and wrong, and, for, and you would not expect human beings to be religious if there was no such thing as God, you would not expect those things to be true. 
if there is no God. And so I invite you to consider today, which do you believe is more plausible? Which do you find more helpful? What's been laid out to you? In Christians, for over 2,000 years, we have found that not only does God existing help us make sense of the world, but believing in the God that the Bible reveals helps us in our life because the Bible reveals a God who is loving, who cares for us, who wants to save the world, and who is uh, working to renew and restore all things. I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When you give your life to God, everything in your life and in our world will begin to come into a greater light and you will see how it makes so much sense of how God has ordered our world. And I invite you to explore him further with us throughout this series. Now, I'd like to invite our choir to come forward. And for those of you who are members and regulars here, if you can think back to our worship series, we have these four movements of our worship gathering. And after the sermon, we have this section called We Respond to God. And it's, it's to say that this, the sermon isn't the final thing of our worship service. No, we actually have to, to think about and to marinate on what maybe God is, is speaking to each one of you now in this moment. And so there might be something from the scripture reading, from the, something I just said that you want to marinate on further. So pick one of those things, and as the choir is singing, would you just let God speak to you and let that word marinate in your heart and in your soul? Let the choir come forward and sing.